And she looks down with contempt on the hardworking Americans, saying that ignorance is pervasive in many parts of this country. And obviously and importantly, Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. It was a scene at once revealing and chilling in the extreme. Doubling down on his tweet storm that a foursome of progressive Democratic members of Congress should go back to where they came from, a tweet storm that the Democratic-controlled House voted to officially condemn as racist, the president flew off to a rally in North Carolina and encouraged the crowd in those chants of, send her back, the 2019 version of lock her up, only in some ways more sinister. The chants were aimed at one of those Democrats in particular, Ilan Omar, an American Muslim born in Somalia who also happens to be a U.S. citizen. Send her back? Really? For some political analysts, Trump was engaged in a deliberate strategy to demonize Omar and her fellow progressives as anti-American, a way to inflame passions, energize his base, and ensure his re-election. But for others, it revived a question that has come up many times before. Has Trump finally, at long last, gone too far? Has he jumped the shark? We'll discuss with one of the sharper minds in American politics, veteran Republican strategist Mike Murphy, and with Tim Alberta, the author of the fascinating new book, American Carnage, on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I got to say, Trump, in his post-tweet comments and in that rally, keeps talking about how these progressive members of Congress are anti-American, and that justifies what he's been saying about them. But it's hard to imagine something more anti-American than kicking an American citizen out of the country because you don't like their political views. Yeah, I agree. Although he is tapping into a uh, strain of nativism in this country that has been present for a long time. So a strain it is, that it is, our, our leaders have traditionally resisted and tried to overcome, pointing and that's to the, the and that's ideals the, And of that our is country. the danger of a demagogue, because a demagogue knows that it's out there and it can be tapped into and it can be inflamed and... Uh, Very few of our political leaders have been willing to do that, and it's been a long time since they have, and now Donald Trump is doing it as his campaign strategy for 2020. What's remarkable is that we've gotten to this point this soon in the re-election. Imagine where we will be six months from now, a year from now. 
And so, you know, I think um, it's easy to be inured to the kinds of provocative things that this president says and to think, well, you know, that's just Trump being Trump. Uh, But it's not. He does cross lines. This is a red line. Yeah. But, you know, and I go back and forth on this because he has crossed lines so many times before, certainly during the campaign, you know, the comments about the Gold Star family, the cons, you know, who had lost their son. He attacked them. He attacked the the federal judge who was overseeing the yeah. Trump University case saying he was biased because he was a Mexican-American, which struck me as you know completely out of bounds, yet he survived all that and won. Uh, certainly the Charlottesville comments, uh, you know, still ring for many people. But I don't know. I, you know, on the other hand, you know, to send her back, as I said, in the cold open, I, it strikes me as more sinister and, and spooky than even lock her up did. I agree. I think in some ways the focus on Trump misses the point. Trump is going to continue to do this as long as he is enabled by the people around him. Remember, this was essentially the Steve Bannon strategy in 2016. And there is nobody that I've seen inside the Trump White House who even anonymously is saying he's gone too far here. And of course, Republicans in Congress have not, except in the tiniest, tiniest numbers, come out to condemn this. So in a lot of ways, I think- you had four Republicans who voted- for that resolution condemning these tweets as racist. Not a lot, but, you know, it's more than we've seen before who have stood up to Donald Trump. Yeah, four. <laughs> okay. Okay. <All> right. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think you make the you make uh, the point. Yeah. So I think that in in reporting this story out, I think the focus needs to be on how in in some ways the uh, you know the strategists around him the Trump campaign everyone who wants to see Trump reelected is kind of weaponizing Donald Trump's id because with Trump it is you know I'm sure there is there's method to his madness there's strategy here but it's also just impulsive it's who he is he's going to keep doing it I think a lot of the responsibility here is and accountability here should be on people who are enabling it and who are backing it and who are cynically taking advantage of it. Right, right. And listen, we should uh, preview uh, the big event coming next week, Mueller's long-awaited testimony. This is uh, a highly anticipated event for all the Democrats who want to impeach Donald Trump. You know, this is either their last stand or the springboard to finally take that action. Um, So we saw this week a congressman from Texas, a Democrat, Al Green, introduce an impeachment resolution in the House actually tied to these racist tweets and statements that the president made. The resolution went down, I think, 337 to 95. Trump was crowing about that at his North Carolina rally. But to me, I think the fact that 95 Democrats uh, voted for it is significant. The last time we talked about this, uh, you know, Democratic support for impeachment on this podcast, I think the number was in the in the low 40s. So it's clearly going up, and this is before Mueller gives testimony. So, um, you know, I I don't think impeachment is dead as an issue, despite the fact that this vote vote went down. Well, I think it's all going to depend on Mueller and whether he goes one inch beyond the actual wording of his report uh, when he gets questioned. 
about you know the fundamental <laughs> issue, which is you know, what do we do with what you found? If right. you can, if you do not recommend criminal prosecution, which you did not, do you believe there is some action that we, the Congress, should take? And there's only one out there, and that's impeachment. How Mueller handles that question, a lot will be writing on that. Um, okay, but well, I think so there's something we, else you yes. want to preview for next week. Well, first of all, we yeah. got a great show today, yes. but before we get to it, I want to tout the latest episode, episode four of uh, your amazing podcast series called Conspiracy Land, which is a skullduggery project. It's about the the unsolved murder of Seth Rich and the conspiracy theories that it spawned. This is one of my favorite episodes of all six of them. This is called Fox News Fiction, and it's really about how a uh, you know America's most powerful conservative news network fanned the flames of this conspiracy theory, and about the characters who you know the cranksters and charlatans and fringe fringe characters and conspiracy theorists who were able to bring this story this conspiracy theory to fox it's it's full of fascinating revelations about the network about the role that the white house plays in, in all of this stuff about steve bannon that no one's ever heard before it really is amazing well, yes, and I, I would like to remind all Skullduggery listeners to go to your podcast app and download Conspiracy Land, and you'll get you can listen to the first three episodes that have already come out, and this new one, Fox News Fiction, which we're all excited about. So please do it. And now let's get on with the show. Now, we have a very special guest for today's episode, the veteran Republican strategist, Mike Murphy. Mike, welcome to Skullduggery. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm happy to be here. I like a little skullduggery. (laughs) (laughs) We specialize in it. All right. Everybody over the last few days has been consumed with Trump's tweet storm about how uh, the squad of progressives should go back to where they came from, even though three were born in the United States and the fourth, uh, Ilan Omar, is a U.S. citizen. And then all leading up, he gets condemned by the House on mostly partisan grounds for what was deemed to be racist tweets. And then he doubles down in this rally in North Carolina with the send her back chance filling the hall. Has Trump finally gone too far here? Well, I think he, look, he incredibly racist tweets. I think the White House is probably missing a bedsheet. I mean, it, it couldn't get much worse. So he is, on any moral scale or any president of the United States, do your job, be responsible scale, he's gone way too far. I think the question on the other side of the coin is the politics of it. Will this actually help him or not? And I think the jury's out on that. Trump's problem is he views everything, all politics, as a matter of exciting his base. But his base is shrinking. He's kind of in a demographic cul-de-sac. He's losing suburban Republicans, college-educated white women, vote groups that normally are helpful to a Republican candidate in a presidential election. So he's down to his folks, and that is probably a losing strategy. That's what the polls say. The question, though, the big loose end in all this is what are the Democrats going to do about it besides condemn him? Are they going to be caught 
as the stock villains in the show he would, wants to put on of racial division. Are they going to show him, teach him a lesson by going even farther to the left or not? You know, we just don't know any of that yet. It's how this well, thing plays out. Along those lines, I want to read you a tweet that we just got that I think may be pretty significant, and I want to get your take on it. It's from a guy named Matt Brooks, who's the executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition, which is a group almost entirely funded by Sheldon Adelson, probably the Republican Party's biggest donor of all. And Matt Brooks wrote as follows, the send her back chants were wrong, vile, and don't reflect who we are as Americans. I strongly oppose Ilhan Omar's views and policies, but those chants have no place in our society. Well, I would say one good for my friend Matt. I know him. He's an old buddy of mine. I also know there's division on his board on the very topic of Trump. But you're right. Sheldon, who has been a Trump supporter, is a very influential guy in that organization and in the party overall. But you're starting with time, you know. Three days ago, there was a horrible silence. Then people started coming out. We had, I think, four and a half brave Republicans. I'll say Amash. Justin Amash is a half because he's now gone independent, who voted with the Democrats on the condemnation resolution. You have a few more things starting to happen now. So it's not the tidal wave of disapproval I was hoping for, but it shows the unease in the party. You know, if you look at the last NBC poll, and I hate to be a poll-focused uh, political hack, but the NBC Wall Street Journal poll about, I don't know, eight days ago when it came out, they asked Republicans a question on that was very interesting. Do you see yourself as a Trump Republican or more of a just a party loyalty Republican? And the Trump number was 44. The party Republican was 46. Those are the worst numbers Trump's had. He used to be up in the 50s. If you had asked during the Reagan presidency, are you a Reagan Republican to Republicans, it would have been 80%. So there is a growing unease in the party, but, you know, that might just get you a cup of coffee because he is the president and nobody's going to be able to successfully primary him. So I'm not sure. But the Brooks's tweet is evidence of the queasiness that's building about these racist tactics. And I say it's about damn time. But he still got something like uh, 90 percent approval from Republicans, right, which is as high as any Republican president in my lifetime, I think. No, that's true, but it's also tribal. I mean, the analogy I use is, let's say you're a Red Sox fan, and your pitcher goes out and slugs a nun and sets a school bus on fire and is just generally a jerk. You know, you you ask him, well, what do you think? Well, I've got some concerns about our pitcher, but I'm not going to be a damn Yankee fan. You know, it's tribal. Yeah. So under those numbers is an unease with Trump, but there's really no option to do anything about it other than, I think, and most of the polling says this, Trump on the ballot question, are you going to vote for Trump, underperforms a little. But again, if the Democrats go hard progressive and decide to run somebody on a Bernie Sanders sort of ideology, or at least what's perceived to be that when Trump's done with them, uh, he may get a lot of those doubting Republicans back because it's just a bridge too far to go against him. Well, you mentioned the possibility of someone uh, primarying him. Of course, Bill Weld is is in the race. Uh, Mark Sanford has just talked about getting in it. I don't think anyone really thinks that they're going to successfully primary him. But isn't the point that you get in and you challenge him and you hurt him? 
Do you think that that could have uh, some real impact on on how he does in the end? I mean, he did not, you know, he won, as we all know, by 78,000 votes in three states. So this idea that he's the odds-on favorite, as I'm hearing a lot of nervous Democrats say, doesn't really strike me as as accurate. Yeah, look, I, I think he's in real political trouble. I mean, if you take all the noise and instant polling and, you know, uh, cable TV opinionating and all of it away, we have a mark-to-market event in politics, just like Wall Street says. You know, mark-to-market. Okay, what could you sell that factory for this week if you had to sell it? What's it really worth, bottom line? Well, in politics, the mark-to-market event is Election Day, where we actually count the voters. And in every Election Day since Trump has been inaugurated, the Republicans have done somewhere between mediocre and awful. So the country's been trying to punish Trump, and you can see it in his polling numbers. The problem is we just don't know who the other choice will be yet, and that's what the year is about. So as far as a primary, it is true that presidents who are weak politically tend to gather a primary. I don't think, as much as I would hope they could, I'm even a donor to Bill Weld, that Trump will be beaten in a primary. One, one of the things, how much, by the way, How much the, did you give him? Um, well, I'm no fool. Um, a couple hundred bucks because I, I admire what he's doing. Okay. As I've, as I've told that, him that'll get him a bus trip to New Hampshire from uh, Boston, right? Well, that that will probably pay for about one day of the Weld New Hampshire campaign, where I think he could get a third of the vote. You know, the other problem is our primaries are different than Democratic primaries in the presidential level. We're mean social Darwinists, God love us. That's why I joined up. And we favor winner take all. Well, the Democrats are big on participation trophies. They're proportional. So, you know, you can come in third, fourth, get delegates. So even if Weld did superhuman work and started pulling 40 percent against Trump, which is a huge sign of trouble for Trump, he wouldn't get any delegates. It wouldn't mean anything. So, yeah, I don't see the primary as beating Trump, but it is a symptom of discontent and trouble. And what's interesting about Stanford, just to finish, he comes from the libertarian fiscal conservative right, which is an ideological part of the party that looks at the Trump deficits where there's such a nonchalant attitude and has real concern. And those are issues traditionally that have been very powerful with the primary voters. So I think Mark could put a few dents on him if he runs, but I'm not betting on it. Mike, let me ask you about the Democratic field for a second, because clearly what Trump is trying to do, I don't know if it's his strategy or the people around him, but he's trying to tie the Democratic field to the squad and their progressive or left wing or, you know, in the views of some people, radical liberal politics. And you seem to suggest that that may be an effective strategy in some ways. But I'm wondering how it breaks down in terms of individual candidates. So let's say Elizabeth Warren wins the Democratic nomination. And she's doing pretty well right now. And she's obviously a pretty canny candidate in a lot of ways. Do you think that he beats Elizabeth Warren because of partly because of that strategy that we just talked about? Well, I would put it this way, because I haven't seen enough of the primary candidates in action to really know yet. You know, it's the process that defines them. But, like, I'm in a weird position because I'm a conservative, but I hate Trump. I've hated him since 92, all these Johnny-come-lately. So I can't vote for him for president, but I'm also not excited about progressive policy. So I actually switched to independent in the California primary where I vote, and I'm going to have to take a bottle of whiskey, drink it, stagger in. To the voting booth and pick a Democrat to support. And so when I look at them all, I think, boy, why, if I'm the Democrats and I really want to beat Trump, why am I taking any risks? 
Why am I giving Trump anything to work with? Not just candidate persona, but ideology. Uh, because if we have a general election where it's a referendum on decriminalizing the border, free medical care for people who are here illegally or undocumented, and then finally any of this idea of, of lawing private health insurance, you're going to give Medi- Trump Medicare so for much all, to, yeah. Medicare for all, right, as it's been branded. Though I, I have a feeling Medicare for all will be the Medicare option for all by the end of this. But the point is you've given Trump a hell of a toolbox to get out of the deep, deep political hole he's in. So to me, I'm looking for people who are going to leave the best breadcrumbs later that they're not going to be as scary in the general so, election. So, so who is that? Know, Warren, well, if Warren runs and she's running a strong primary, she's competitive in all the sectors of the Democratic primary. If she is going to be the angry professor progressive, she gives Trump a ton to work with. If she can pivot over to fighting grandma for the middle class, she is in business. If Kamala Harris wants to debate racial issues and they have essentially a racial identity campaign, well, Trump will have a white racial identity campaign. It'll be incredibly ugly, but there will be votes for Trump. Mayor Pete. He's kind of sent signals that he might be a little more moderate and pragmatic. Biden, of course, his whole argument is that he can go into those counties and get high school educated white guys, the vote the Democratic Party needs the most. But, you know, I don't know if the rickety Joe thing is going to make it to Christmas yet. You know, we, we need a few better debates. So, Well, you know, this um, is, strikes me. It strikes me as, you know, in many ways, a weaker field for all its numbers than, you know, at first blush, because yeah. I don't see Warren capable of making the kind of pivot you just described because her whole persona her whole reason for being is is uh, is she's a fighter she's a progressive and she wants to take the battle to the right. republicans she's not looking to make compromises so i you know it would be hard to me for me to see her making that kind of general election switch that you just described yeah. or pivot do you, do you um, still by the way and still maintain her you know her just her faithful base quick follow up to mike's question do you think that that pivot today is as important as it's been in in past elections, or do you think it's less important in some ways? That's a great question. Look, I think the urge to fire the incumbent is very strong, and that's all Trump. But boy, they're adding risk. It is interesting to me that the short-term incentives of the primary to kind of have this hostility to grumpy old white men gets in the way of the vote they need to peel a few more off to win, which are grumpy old white men. Um, and so you've got the incentives of the general election in the primary directly at loggerheads, and I'm worried they're all going to chase the primary incentives, and the Democrat vote will be really stoked to vote for them. But, you know, when somebody throws that lever and is screaming in joy, that doesn't count any more than somebody just throwing the letter saying, oh, I guess it's better than Trump. So we just don't um, know yet. That's what the whole campaign is going to be about, finding that out. So, Mike, you said you've hated Trump since 1992. What caused you to start hating him back then? <laughs> well, I was suspicious through the 80s, but I was a political consultant for Governor Christine Todd Whitman of New Jersey, and Trump was down trying to screw up Atlantic City, so we had to deal with them a little bit. And, uh, uh, okay, shameless plug, I actually co-wrote a movie with a guy named Dan Sterling who just wrote The Long Shot, which has been out in theaters, based on a book by a guy who worked for Trump named Jack O'Donnell. Uh, oh, who's yeah. Steve Wynn guy. It's a great book. I, and, I, I interviewed O'Donnell uh, back oh, during you did? the 2016 campaign. Yeah, he had some well, interesting things to say. Yeah, He uh, was 
this hotshot young win executive and young, you know, late 30s Trump hires him and he's all excited. I'm going to work for Trump and learn so much. And by the end of it, he knows exactly who Trump is. So it's a we, we wrote a screenplay. We're shopping about this now. So, yeah, I had a, a lot of uh, let's say what would be the word. I, I just learned a lot about Trump in the 90s and confirmed all my worst suspicions. Actually, I'm now remembering the story I talked to O'Donnell about. There had been a mobbed-up whale at the uh, Trump casinos who there had been lots of... uh, The guy was a racist who would yell all sorts of racist epithets at uh, the the casino employees causing complaints, ultimately caused a fine to be uh, leveled against the the Trump casinos. But anyway, the guy was also, the mobbed-up guy, also sold... Old Trump a racehorse. And then the racehorse, Trump bought it, renamed the uh, the racehorse the Donald Trump after himself, the racehorse. And then the Trump racehorse went lame. And then Trump tried to renege on the deal, refused to pay up for the racehorse. O'Donnell was witness to all this. And, yeah, he um, wouldn't anyway. even pay for the food. He tried to starve it, allegedly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so you know, the you know the story. You know the story. Oh, it's in the movie? Yeah, yeah, it's in the script. Now we got to make it a movie, but it's starting oh, to move around Hollywood. So all right, I'm there. Hopefully coming I, uh, to a screen near you. So, look, you've had long ties to a lot of mainstream establishment Republicans, Christine Todd Whitman, you just mentioned, but Mitt Romney, John McCain, the Bushes, both, you know, W and Jeb. And it's hard. I would love to get some insight into when you talk to your old establishment Republican pals what they say about Trump and the level of discomfort they must have at seeing the way he conducts himself as president. Yeah, I, you know, I don't want to betray any private conversations, but as you would expect, they're mostly horrified. I'll give you one conversation I had with not one of those guys, but a thoughtful Republican statewide uh, official and uh, called me up and said, hey, I just saw you on you know, NBC screaming about Trump. I, it was very amusing. I wish I could be you. And I said, no, be me. It's not that hard. Just tell the truth about Trump. And that person said, well, here's the problem. I'd like to go back to my state and give a flame-throwing press conference about Donald Trump being unfit for office and, and an idiot and all the other things. But an hour after my press conference is done, Trump will not change at all. Not up one bit. He's just Trump, and he'll continue to be Trump, and my act will have no influence on him, but I'll tell you what it will do. I'll have a primary from a guy in an aluminum, you know, uh, Uncle Sam suit the next day, which I might lose, and I'm thrown out of office, and I can do no good. So it's kind of like asking me to blow myself up for no purpose, no impact. I said, well, if five of you would do it, it would have an impact, and that person said, you're right. Call me when you get the first two, and I'm in. So, you know, I'm, I'm not defending it, but I understand the hard, pragmatic realities of taking on a guy who is beloved by only one group in America, you know, two-thirds of the Republican primary electorate. And it's just tough so business it, that way. So at the bottom line is it's all about self-preservation politically? Well, it's heavily about self-preservation. Now, maybe the latest line he crossed will change some of that. I'm very proud of the Fred Uptons and Will Hurds and others who are being pretty public about it. I think Mitt was fairly tough on him, but not nearly enough. And, you know, they are playing primary was, politics was Mitt now. Really, was Mitt really tough on him? I mean, yes, I mean, this he time said, around, it was a little tepid. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. It struck me as, you know, he disapproved. Uh, uh, well, look, no, nobody but, is, nobody's, yeah. well, I would say the guys who voted did what I wanted to see, but 
nobody's all the way there, but compared to the silence or in some cases the cheerleading for it, I, I give a little pass for temperature if you at least are on the record criticizing them. That's, that's the step I'll take. But, you know, this political tribalism is nothing new. I, I'm not going to argue moral equivalence because I don't believe it is so. But when Bill Clinton misbehaved, there was not a lot of elected Democratic officials taking him on. I don't think there were any op-eds. You know, there was muted off-the-record criticism. So this phenomena of being loyal to the leader of the party is awful, but it's not new. It's just being tested at a whole new level by Trump because his actions are so outrageous beyond anything we've seen before. I mean, we have somebody who's totally unfit to be president here. So let me, people let me, seem to sleepwalk yeah, through. Yeah. Let me ask you the, the existential question about your party. Do you think that Trumpism outlives Trump? Do you think that uh, what's going on now, and w- that Trump is an expression of all of these you know, forces, cultural and political, in the country that have sort of redefined the Republican Party? Or do you think he's uh, you know, some kind of anomaly? You know, I have hopes it's an anomaly. I think we might have a reformation in the rubble that'll be our politics post-Trump on the Republican side because he has been so far a disaster. You know, we've had the worst House elections since 74. We're losing governorships. Uh, I think it's more likely than not we lose the presidency, though the Democrats seem to be doing what they can to give him a help. So out of that rubble, I think there will be a rebuilding and the Civil War will be between some new version of Trumpism and a more conservative, excuse me, a more traditional conservative and I hope modernized opportunity conservatism and I'm going to be in the middle of that fight and I I can't tell you how I think it'll turn out but the fact is that nearly half of Republicans on a survey do not define themselves as Trump Republicans shows the building pushback and you know nobody gets nothing punishes you in politics like electoral failure and if he takes us down in 2000, in the reelect, excuse me, and he costs us the Senate majority, which I think is quite possible, then I think it'll be, you know, it's a hell of a price to pay, but uh, it'll leave the argument for Trumpism in, in ruins. And because it's a personality cult, I mean, how many Juan Perones do you get? So right. my guess is you, we'll have you, a actually think, you actually think he could lose the Senate as well as yeah, the presidency? Yeah, I do. I do. Who, who, who's, the Democrats who you... just need to get out of the way, and they seem to be uh, awful at that. Yeah, well, the the math is better for them. This right, the math right. is better for but them. But who, this who time would around. you put as you know in terms of most vulnerable of Republicans that um, have to be looked? Uh, well, obviously Corey and uh, who, who's a pretty good senator. It's always the better guys who get clipped in these tough elections. In Colorado, I think North Carolina could be in play. I think uh, Collins and in, in Maine. In a presidential year, Senate races can be wiped away by the tidal wave of the presidential. And if the Democrats decide not to run a ultra-progressive identity race, but to reach out to uh, working people and middle-class economics, and because Trump's not going to improve, they, they can have a tremendous win. The problem is there are no incentives in their primary right now to do that. So just in, in wrapping up on perhaps a hopeful note uh, for you, who <laughs> is, is there, a, is there a, some bright, young, promising Republican who you think could lead that reformation that you talked about? You know, I've become enough of an apostate that I don't want to doom anybody with my blessing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's more of a curse. Yeah, but Link I, to I Murphy think... could be the political oh, yeah, know, death no, wish no, for I'm, somebody. I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a traitor to the junta. But there are the new generation, many of them understand the problem. And I think we're going to have great opportunities. We're kind of like Toyota. Well, when your factories are all pounded to rubble in 1947, you get to build brand new, very good factories. 
series, and we'll see if we seize that opportunity. Yeah. By the way, yeah. I think we did we did we actually plug uh, Mike's Ooh. excellent new podcast. I, I did it oh, the yeah, intro. Yeah. Hacks, uh, Hacks on Tap Hacks on with tap. David Axelrod, right. yeah. uh, um, which I'm sure you'll be uh, plowing many of the same ground. I, I'm just going to just to wrap up here, go out on a, a little bit of a limb. I think you know. Look, I thought Trump's tweets were bad, and um, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, had an impact and clearly led to that uh, House vote. But I think the chance. When people watch those chants, send her back, that's going to spook a lot of people, a lot of people who might be have been tempted to like accept Trump's defense of the tweets themselves, you know, and say, look, these were anti-American comments that people were making and I was just standing up for the country. But the imagery of those chants, I think, is so powerful and so spooky that I think it could be a turning point. But Yeah, look, I think you're onto something. I think we might have hit a tipping point, particularly in the suburbs where there's such doubt about Trump anyway. The Dems just have to watch their scary progressive stuff so they don't scare those suburbanites back to Trump. That That is the great lost veritable of the election. And again, to shamelessly plug, you know, Axe and I have been friends for 30 years talking politics, good friends. So we decided to take those conversations into a podcast. So imagine you pulled a bar stool up with two guys who've actually run these things talking about what's really going on. So we're having tremendous fun with Axe on tap, and I appreciate the plug from you guys. And keep okay, up well, the right. spell Duggery. Mike, <laughs> all right. I love the name. Listen, yeah, uh, yeah. Plug us on Hacks on Tap. And thanks for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Well, we are really pleased to have on the podcast Tim Alberta, the uh, chief political correspondent for Politico magazine and author of the new book, American Carnage, on the front lines of the Republican Civil War and the rise of President Trump. Excellently timed book. The news is uh, playing right into this. It's a great book, first of all. Thank it's you. Uh, What's really, I think, important about it is the context that you lay out of the, this Republican Civil War that's been going on for a couple of decades now and kind of laid the groundwork for Trumpism. A lot of news happening over the last couple of days that I think illuminates uh, some of the things that you write about in this book. So let's talk about two things quickly. One is the uh, House Democrats passed a uh, resolution of disapproval for these uh, racist tweets that uh, Trump put out there uh, a few days ago. Four House Republicans voted for it. Everyone else voted against it. And then we had the Trump rally in North Carolina. Send her back was the chant from the crowd about Elon Omar, which uh, Trump just kind of let happen, kind of sort of seemed to revel in it. What does that tell us about where the Republican Party is right now and how we got here? Yeah, look, the, the last four or five days, guys, have been pretty much a, a perfect microcosm of Trump's takeover of the party. And it's not just in what he says and does, obviously, but it's in how Republicans respond to it or in many cases don't respond to it. Give Trump all the credit in the world, whether you love him or hate him. This is a guy who was pretty prescient in understanding early that many Republican elected officials are pretty spineless and that they didn't have the stomach for a fight with him. He identified it as soon as, probably before he came down that golden escalator in 2015. You know, he looked around the primary field and he said, Jeb Bush, this guy is a patsy, right? Like, look at him. He can't even stand up straight. And Marco Rubio, this guy, you know, I'll, I'll eat him for breakfast. I mean, the one guy in the field who Trump had any respect for was Cruz, because at least he knew that Cruz, 
you know, was willing to call Mitch McConnell a liar on the Senate floor. And Cruz was willing to color outside of the lines, right? He was willing to play by his own rules. And Trump, sort of as soon as he won the nomination, even when Paul Ryan came out and called him a racist, Trump just sort of flicks him aside like a flea. And Access Hollywood weekend, when you have these Republicans calling for him to get out the race, uh, Trump basically just thumbs his nose at him and says, what you, who are you guys to tell me to get out of the race? You know, what do I care about your opinion? And he stays the course. And he knows he stays the course because he knows they're all going to wind up coming back to him anyway. Right. All these Republicans, the, the three dozen or so who came out and disavowed him right after Access Hollywood in that first 48 hour period, almost all of them by Election Day were back out on the stump for him. Mm-hmm. So Trump understood something in the kind of in the DNA and the psychology of the Republican Party. And we see it still today that. They are sort of inherently, and you, and this doesn't speak for everyone. I would point out that you know one of the people who voted for the resolution is is a guy like Will Hurd from Texas, congressman down in the 23rd district, who is just an objectively good member of Congress, a guy who you'd want representing you no matter what your ideology is, because he's competent, he's a professional, and he's got a heart. And the guy listens to his constituents, and he knows right from wrong, and he speaks truth to power. And by the way. He's probably going to lose his reelection now. The Democrats already had crosshairs on him because he's in one of the tightest districts in the country. And now he just went against the president. And we know from watching the last couple of years, whether it's Sanford or Flake, that's a death sentence. So obviously the Republican Party and its elected officials understand that there's essentially a binary decision in today's party. The fault lines are really no longer around ideology. It's basically, are you with Trump or are you against Trump? And anybody who comes out against Trump is taking their career in their own hands at that point. So the continuing theme here in your book is the slavish devotion to Trump and the abandonment of anything, not just principle, but self-respect. So I want to take three people who leap out in reading this. First is Cruz. Here's a guy who was mercilessly attacked by Trump during the campaign in deeply personal ways. He fed the uh, National Enquirer stories about it and promoted them about Cruz's personal life. Clear cheap shots. Then the uh, attack on his father as as being a part of a, a JFK assassination conspiracy. Totally ridiculous stuff. How does a guy like that come back to Trump after attacks of that nature? Cruz is just a fascinating case study in all of this because it's really interesting during Cruz's own political ascent, guys, remember, we all sort of viewed him, we in the political class, the media, his own colleagues on Capitol Hill, as sort of a phony, right? That it was always, he was always trying a little too hard, that he was really inauthentic. People couldn't quite tell who is that, you know, this is a guy who would work for W. Bush. This is a guy who was solicitor general. He's kind of a, you know, a paragon of the party establishment in many ways, but he's running as this, you know, burn it down insurgent. And What was so fascinating about his tangling with Trump, and if you recall, the day that Trump beat Cruz in Indiana, knocking Cruz out of the primary in 2016, that morning, Cruz gave a press conference of sorts, kind of a gaggle with reporters, and that's when he unloaded on Trump. Remember, he said, this guy is a pathological liar. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. And he went, I mean, two or three minutes, chapter and verse, just unloaded on Trump in the most personal terms imaginable. And I remember watching that and thinking to myself, that's authentic, right? Like now this guy is actually letting us know how he really feels. And what was so interesting is that before the convention in Cleveland, Cruz's advisors told him, look, you've got two options here, okay, when he was invited to speak. You can either speak and endorse 
or you cannot speak. But there's not a third option. You don't speak and not endorse. It doesn't work that way, right? And Cruz ignored him. He said, no, 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 I can, I'm going to speak, but I'm, there's no way I'm going to endorse this guy. And so, of course, we know what happens. Cruz gets booed off the stage. But what's so interesting is that the next morning in Cleveland, I was there, he goes to a breakfast with the Texas delegation, and his own delegation is booing him. They're showering him with booze. Right, I remember that. And, this, and, and, and there are people taunting him. And Cruz looks out with this real anger in his face, and he says, You'll have to excuse me if I'm not going to just pledge devotion or however he phrased it, if I'm not going to pledge undying allegiance to somebody who mocked my father and my wife. And they were booing him as he said it. And I thought, man, what a paradox, because this is the most authentic we've ever seen Cruz. And it's also the most despised we've seen him. And to answer your question, Mike, I know I'm rambling a bit there, but Cruz, like so many of these other Republicans, came to understand that if you're going to be on the wrong side of Trump, that also means you're going to be on the wrong side of Trump's base. And Cruz was up for re-election in 2018. He understood that right. that was going to be a base turnout election. And if he didn't turn out all these Republicans in Texas, he was going to lose. And the other revealing episode from that period was the day after the convention ended, the Friday after Trump had accepted the nomination. And he has the press conference. So he's now the official Republican nominee. And he goes out and he gives that speech or press conference where he doubles down on Cruz's father as part of the JFK assassination conspiracy. If ever there was a moment when you would have expected or when you would people might have hoped that Trump would rise to the occasion, he's now the official Republican nominee. He shows his true colors, which is attack conspiracies, all the Petty, anger, pettiness, right? pettiness yeah. within him. And there he was. Yeah, and you know what's so interesting, too, about the Cruz relationship? So and they told us more about, as much about Donald Trump as anything else. Oh, absolutely. Right. Well, yeah. And Cruz, when he was running for re-elect in 2018, obviously Beto O'Rourke comes out of nowhere, and he really energizes the Democratic base in Texas. He's raising more money than anybody's ever seen in a U.S. Senate race. He's got LeBron James and Beyonce wearing his apparel, and Cruz is suddenly in deep trouble here. And so Cruz has to thread this needle because the president catches a whiff of the fact that Cruz is in trouble, and the president loves that Cruz is in trouble. You have to realize that in that entire 2016 nominating period, the only person that Trump ever felt threatened by was Cruz, and that's why he went after him so hard. And I've been told repeatedly by people close to the president that whenever Cruz is around the White House for dinners, for functions, whatever, that Trump acts a little bit differently, that there's still this sort of tension between the two of them. And so when the president in the summer of 18 caught wind that Cruz was in trouble down in Texas, he's licking his lips, and he says, oh, i got to go down there and save Ted. But Cruz didn't want Trump to come to any of the big metro areas because he was worried about alienating all these suburban moderates. So Cruz's campaign is begging the White House, please send him to Lubbock, send him to Waco, send him somewhere away from Houston and from Dallas. And what does Trump do? He catches wind of that. He says, no, we're going to Houston. We're going to Houston. We're going to the biggest city in Texas. And sure enough, not only did it seriously hurt Cruz's numbers there, but the, the Republicans wound up losing a congressional seat, a Houston-based congressional seat, because of that rally. There's tons of numbers to back it up. And so talk about what that says about the president, obviously, and, and not just his relationship with Cruz, but with the party writ large. Well, let's talk about some other Republicans. I'm fascinated by Mike Pence. Yeah. Um, so here's a guy who, during the campaign, was critical of Trump. He called the, the Muslim ban offensive and unconstitutional. He's a... Uh, 
an evangelical Christian who clearly was offended by uh, what came out in the, uh, that by then he was already the, the vice presidential nominee, but, you know, Trump's ethics or lack thereof and philandering and so on and so forth. So what happened to Pence? So you have a great anecdote in the book where uh, when he is considering whether he should actually go on the ticket, Dave McIntosh, who I think was a member of Congress from Indiana and head of the... Um, Club for Growth. Uh, Club for Growth. He asks McIntosh about it. McIntosh says, well, you know, you're always going to be Mike Pence. And so I guess the question is, is he still Mike Pence? Or did he he sell his soul? Well, man, that's a $64,000 question. Look, Pence is a fascinating character in all of this because while so many Republicans understand what Trump is and and they have kind of made their own arrangement with him, which is to say that, you know, they'll go on Fox News and they'll praise him and they'll back him up on the House floor and they'll vote with him and they'll do whatever they need to do publicly to show that they are aligned with him. But privately, you get a Bud Light into these guys and they'll tell you exactly how they feel about Trump and they'll tell their family. And when they're back home, I mean, they understand what Trump is and, and kind of this deal with the devil that they've had to make. And it's obviously it's duplicitous and, and, and dishonest. Pence does not really feel that way about. And I'm telling you guys, it might sound like it's BS or it's spin from his people or whatever. I spent a lot of time around the Pence people and with Pence himself during the campaign. Pence had this real road to Damascus conversion on Trump where when Trump began courting him to become It happened VP, on the golf course. Yeah, well, right? it started on the golf course of all places. <laughs> but when Trump started pursuing Pence to become his VP, Pence was very uneasy about it. He had been, as you said, during the campaign and watching Trump's ascent, Pence would tell his advisors, this is gross. This is, I mean, Pence is a guy who was offended by the Disney film Mulan back in the day for what it right. said about women in the military. Well, but, this is a pretty sensitive guy. But doesn't this answer the question as to whether... Pence has sold his soul? Absolutely. Well, but, of course he has. But, but, and I just want to read, the way you capture Pence is so penetrating and devastating. And there's just one paragraph that leapt out at me. Pence's talent for bootlicking. He was nicknamed the bobblehead by Republicans on Capitol Hill for his solemn nodding routine whenever Trump spoke were at their most obscene during meetings at the White House after Trump would open the floor to Pence, aides would suppress grins as the vice president offered his opening tribute to the president, exhausting his storehouse of superlatives and leaving the other attendees to wonder whether they too were expected to kneel. I mean, (laughs) Pence absolutely has sold his soul. This is an evangelical guy who, you know, had principles about a mainstream, uh, 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 mainstream free trade pro-immigration right. reform right, right, whole, right, right, right no question right and that's just on the policy but the relationship here between these two guys is so fascinating and i think it's 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 misunderstood because Pence, certainly, there is an element here of self-preservation, of ambition. The guy wants to be president. Don't he get me wrong not on any gonna, of that. He was not going to be reelected. No, he was in real uh, in, trouble in Indiana. In Indiana. So, tr- so Trump threw him the lifeline. But guys, I'm telling you, aside from all that, and, and all of that is real and it's at play, and I'm not being Pollyannish here, but Pence, he feels as though the Trump he got to know is entirely different from the Trump that the world sees. Pence believes that he has this sort of insight into Trump's soul and that he, I'm telling you, we had this long interview and Pence at one point unsolicited started talking to me about the sincerity of Trump's faith 
and talking to me about how they'd prayed together on the plane repeatedly. And you and don't think that's rationalization on his part? I think part some of it is, yeah. but wait, wait, wait. I, I do think Trump, some of it is. Trump and Pence prayed together yeah. on the plane? Yep. But Pence told me the video of that? There, I mean, somebody I, took a picture actually once, yeah. uh, one of the social media guys, and that was obviously propaganda. But you know what's interesting too is that, so Pence, again, he's got this caricature in mind of Trump before he meets him. And when he's on the way to the airport to fly to Bedminster on the July 4th weekend, because Pence said to Trump, look, if I'm going to consider being your VP, I want my family to spend time with your family. So Trump brings the Pences up to his golf course in New Jersey. And when Pence is on the way to the airport to go up there, he suddenly feels all of this anxiety sort of flooding over him about what am I doing? This is, I don't, I don't trust this guy. I don't. So he calls Kellyanne Conway, who's been Pence's pollster forever. They're very close. Talk about people who have sold their soul. It's a different book. Different book. Yeah, right. And, and, and Kellyanne had just been hired by Trump the day before Pence was flying up to Bedminster. And so Pence says to Kellyanne, you know, what am I doing here? Like, I, I don't, this is, I'm not a Trump guy. Why am I going to New Jersey? And Kellyanne says to him, my friend, you have crossed the Rubicon. You've already come this far. You accepted the invitation to go to Jersey. You can't turn back now. I'm going to make sure you get it. And it's so interesting that even at the, even in the 11th hour there, he's still having these doubts because Pence knows what he's getting himself into, right? And he understands that Trump could not be more of a polar opposite to everything he has stood for, not only as a policymaker, but as a person. Well, uh, it does remind me that it was on this podcast that her husband called the Republican Party under Donald Trump a personality cult. Yep, I and, remember. And said he's no longer considers and he no longer considers himself a Republican. One other portrait that's pretty devastating in your book I want you to talk about is Paul Ryan, mm-hmm. a guy who was viewed as a principled conservative, old school conservative and with a modicum of decency. Right. And yet he presided over the Republican complete devotion to Donald Trump and abandonment of all principles. And I think the preface that you gave there, Mike, is really important contextually because I think the reason that Paul Ryan became sort of enemy number one for a lot of folks on the left and even, you know, a lot of folks in the Republican Party who are uncomfortable with Trumpism and with the party's capitulation to Trump is that Ryan really was seen universally as this very kind of principled, decent guy. I mean, it's important to understand that even when Ryan was putting forth these budget proposals that were hugely divisive, hugely polarizing, Ryan was really well liked personally by Democrats on Capitol Hill. This is a guy who just had good relationships. When he became speaker, John Lewis and Nancy Pelosi and people kind of mobbed him on the floor and shook his hand. People liked Paul Ryan. And there was a real expectation, I think, that because Ryan had been so hard on Trump throughout the 2016 campaign, and there was nobody harder, right? Ryan basically called him a racist. And it seemed like once a week, Ryan would come out and say, you know, what this guy just said is wrong. And that's not who we are as a party. And I think it's the fact that Ryan did such a 180 and that he felt like in order to serve as Speaker of the House, in order to pass a legislative agenda, that he had to swallow his concerns, that he had to bite his tongue, that he had to turn a blind eye to everything the president was doing. And... I think that it was the whiplash of that that just that really rocked people. You spent time with Ryan in reporting on this book. Tell us about what he told you. Well, it's interesting. So we did two long interviews for the book. Okay, and the first was while he was still in office. 
And as you can imagine, he was very careful about everything he had to say about Donald Trump. So this was in the fall of 18. And and I've covered Ryan for a long time. I've been to his hometown. I've met some of his family members. I know him pretty well. And I could tell that in that first interview in the fall of 18, he was still very on message. He was, you know, Speaker Ryan. He was the ally of the president's trying to pass this legislative pro-growth agenda, et cetera, et cetera. Three weeks after we retired, I went to Janesville, Wisconsin, and we sat down together. And immediately I could tell that not only was he liberated from office and liberated from kind of the Stockholm syndrome, uh, you know, associated with the party under Trump, but that he had some things he had to say, that he felt like he needed to unload his, his conscience a little bit. And so we went for about 90 minutes and many times unsolicited. It almost felt like he was kind of talking to himself more than talking to me at times. He, he just, and I don't want to sound melodramatic, but that's... It was almost a little bit of a therapy session for him. Uh, And he said, you know, he talked a lot about not just in the political realm, but sort of as a society, like how did we get to the place where we nominated this guy? Like what? And that's a big theme of the book, right? That this happened not just in the political ecosystem, but in the culture. And so Ryan was really, I think, struggling with that. And like, how do we pick up the pieces? And obviously he took some shots at the president that the president didn't appreciate. Right. I want to pick up on that point because the central argument of the book, it seems to me, is that Trump is not some anomalous figure, that he is an expression of forces that were bubbling up in the Republican Party, in the culture. So talk just briefly, because we're running out of time, about the kind of the road to Trump, what the sort of most important inflection points are, and also whether Trumpism outlasts Trump, what happens uh, going forward. Yeah. So I'm glad you asked. I mean, look, to the first question, it's really important to understand that I didn't want to write this book to hold up a mirror to Donald Trump or even to hold up a mirror to the Republican Party. I really wanted to write it to hold up a mirror to the American culture and to the American voter. Because I think that Trumpism is sort of the natural conclusion in many ways of where we've been headed over the last 15 to 20 years politically, really in the post 9-11 era, if you you wanted to start there. I chose to start in 2008 because I think in 2008, you see this convergence of events. You have McCain picking Palin and Palin's incredible populist appeal and people are scratching their head like, what does this mean for us? And then you have the financial collapse. By the way, just you could easily go back to George Wallace in 1968. Well, sure you could. I mean, you could start in a million. You could start with Buchanan taking on H.W. Bush. You could start with Newt in 94, right? right? I mean, it's... Yeah, there's a million places you could start. But in no way, yeah, you have Palin, you have the financial collapse, millions of people losing their jobs. And we know that all around the world throughout history, when that many people lose their jobs, you see these upticks in, in nativism and isolationism and protectionism, a lot of insecurity and, and people want to put up walls and just kind of bunker down and, and, and look inward. So you have that. And then, of course, you have Obama winning and the first African-American president and all that that entails culturally. And it's also important to realize that, you know, in 09... Obama is opposed to same-sex marriage, and you know Trump doesn't have a Twitter handle, and Facebook is smaller than MySpace, and Uber doesn't exist. And like we've come so far as a country in such a condensed window mm. that I think obviously the disruption, and you layer that disruption on top of some of the economic dislocation. There's this great stat that I found for the book that in an 18-month window between the end of Bush's presidency, the beginning of Obama's presidency, 15% of the entire American manufacturing workforce vanished in 18 months. Mm. So it's millions of people out of work. And so you layer that on top of the cultural disruption and then the political disruption of, of Obama and the Tea Party. This was a powder keg. 
and it was ready to explode, and, and it did. And so we shouldn't be shocked. I think the real question then to your second point is, where does it go from here? And does Trumpism outlast Trump? And I think in a certain way it's got to because the Republican governing class had really grown intellectually complacent They in the post-Reagan era. They had just taken for granted that, you know, the Wall Street Journal's editorial board spoke for the Republican voter when it didn't on matters of trade and pretty liberalized immigration policies and the rest. So I think that never again will Republicans seeking high office take for granted the fact that the sort of macroeconomic arguments made by guys like Mitt Romney are in fact connecting with blue-collar America. But on the other hand, there's also got to be a course correction from the Republicans at some point because of the demographic writing being on the wall. These folks are smart enough to understand that you cannot win presidential elections in the long term it, it with the a, Trump coalition. It's a strategy of diminishing returns. Absolutely. The yeah. math doesn't work. And yeah. so the question is how many elections will they have to lose before they realize that? But there are going to be ambitious, smart Republicans who come along, whether it's four years from now or 20, who understand that they've got to modulate somehow and understand that they cannot win presidential races with 26 to 28 percent of the Hispanic vote. Well, yeah. We will see whether that happens. But I have to say, if the sort of ultimate takeaway for the explanation of Republican behavior is the base and the concerns about the base, then I have to say that um, your book is one that, um, uh, unlike any that I have read in quite a while, does challenge one's faith in democracy. Uh, And... um, well, I'm glad you know, to hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's I don't a, know. It's a pretty sobering thought. But um, Tim, Alberta, thanks a lot for joining us. Congrats on the book. It's American Carnage on the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War. Thank you, guys. This is a lot of fun. Thanks, Tim. Thanks to author and journalist Tim Alberta and political consultant Mike Murphy for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.